Well, sometimes you just need to look past the headline to understand what's really going on. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. Man, some market turbulence recently over the past week or so. Two, we're going to dig into what's going on here, right? Is it Omicron, the Federal Reserve, the job market? Joining us tonight, Andy Stout. He's a certified financial planner, chief investment officer for Allworth Financial. Andy manages more than $11 billion from right here in Cincinnati. Andy, let's start with Omicron because... Every day, the market seems to respond to whatever the latest headline is. Yeah, the thing with the Omicron is that it spreads really quickly, mm-hmm. uh, more quickly than it seems anything else uh, that's really come across from the variant side of things. Now, the good news is that it doesn't appear to be causing any sort of surge in hospitalization. So the the symptoms are relatively mild compared to Delta and some other variants that are out there. So that's the good news. The bad news is that it does appear that Omicron could be a little bit more vaccine resistant some, uh, than some of the other vaccines that are out there. Uh, and that could result in some increased infections because of how uh, contagious it is. And that could lead to some lockdowns. Probably not going to see any lockdowns here in the United States, uh, but it's possible we do see them in other parts of the world. Hey, Andy, I, I, I get the whole point about Omicron and, and OK, it could be a drag on the economy. But we we've had this huge run in the stock market for the past year and a half. And, and I, I guess my concern is, it, did the market when the news on Omicron came out on Black Friday and the market nosedived, did the market nosedive because of Omicron or did it nosedive because it's just overvalued and investors are looking for a reason to to start a correction, to, to head for the doors and lock in gains? You know, Steve, I don't think that's a bad thesis in all honesty. Uh, I mean, valuations are elevated, but they're typically not a reason for selling. It's when a catalyst comes along. And if you do have elevated valuations, uh, it's going to increase that volatility when you do see a catalyst like Omicron or possibly another catalyst is the Federal Reserve. It's our nation's central bank. All right. So let's talk about the Federal Reserve, Andy, because, um, you know, they've tried to keep a close eye on inflation right now. And they've talked about uh, kind of tapering off bond purchases. But now there seems to be much more pressure on inflation. Do you think they're going to speed up this process? Yeah, it certainly seems like it. When Chair Powell was in front of Congress last week, uh, he was talking about how the committee would discuss speeding up the reduction of their bond purchases. In November, at their November 3rd meeting, they announced that they would start to reduce the amount of bonds they're buying by $15 billion a month. So that's what we call tapering. And it seemed at the time that we had a pretty high bar to change that pace of tapering. And it was more, most likely, the most likely scenario at the time was that the Fed would be done with all of its bond buying uh, come June. Now, now, with inflation, the latest CPI uh, release in October coming in at a 30-year high, showing a 6.2% year-over-year change in prices, that bar was hit. We had a high bar to uh, speed up tapering, and I think that bar was hit. So Chair Powell talked to Congress, threw it out there, and I think that might have been another catalyst for the volatility that we saw. Uh, and when the Fed meets coming up here on December 15th, wouldn't be too surprising if they do announce that they're going to speed up tapering. Well, it makes sense that they're going to speed up tapering, Andy. But, I I mean, this is the second uh, month in a row that we are talking about looking for inflation numbers that are at 30-year highs. I mean, not just recent highs, 30-year highs. And and the Fed is saying, yeah, but we're probably not going to get around to raising interest rates till next summer at the earliest. I I mean, is this – it seems like the writing's on the wall that inflation is serious. It's here not for the short term for certainly at least a little bit longer than the short term. Is this, are are they too slow? Is this too little too late? Well, 
Let me just say one thing first. You're talking 30-year highs. We're getting a new CPI release coming out this Thursday. It's expected to come in at a 6.8% change on a year-over-year basis. That's going to be the highest, uh, and I hate to throw this year out there because I know it's going to bring back a lot of bad memories. That's going to be the highest since 1982, right? Oh, when I knew we had you were the... going to go there. Yeah, <laughs> so that's uh, certainly not an era that a lot of people want to re, uh, relive. Now, we might think, to, oh, we had some really good CD rates. Yeah, well, your mortgage was probably also around 12 or 13%. Mine was, so you bet. So there's the downside to it right there. Now, the question, Steve, you suppose, is the Fed you know, behind the curve here, right? Are they moving too little Yeah, too they're late? seeing the same numbers we're seeing, you know? It, it, it just seems like they're waiting too long. Yeah, and... It, it has to kind of be done in a process, and we'll see how it all plays out. But when the Fed starts to hike rates, that does slow down the economy. And I don't think it – the data right now does not suggest that they would push us into a recession, at least in the in the short term. But when the Fed hikes rates, it slows down the economy because interest rates on loans and things like that are higher. Uh, and that's going to cause – the, when the economy slows down, that should cause inflation to drop a little bit uh, along the way. The concern is, though, if the Fed is too aggressive, they could hike us into a recession, which would you know, stop inflation essentially dead in its tracks. So there's a balancing act the Fed needs to do because they have a dual mandate for full employment and stable inflation. Certainly, we're not at stable inflation, right? Full employment, you could argue we're getting pretty close with the jobs report that came out last week. Looked really solid with a 4.2% unemployment rate. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55 KRC, digging past the headlines into what's really affecting your money. Andy Stout, our chief investment officer, joining us as he does every Monday. Andy, you know, you mentioned that jobs report. The headline number was disappointing to a lot of people, but I think you make up a, make a great point here. There was a lot of good news in that, too. Yeah, so there's two surveys that the Fed, Federal Reserve does. One, they talk with businesses and they say how many new jobs were added. And then they talk with emplo- uh, uh, people, individuals, and to see how many more people found a job. And these two numbers can vary widely from week to or month to month. Uh, but what we saw from when the, uh, the what's called the household survey, when the government was speaking with individuals, was that 1.1 million people found jobs last month. And that's a huge number. Uh, And what that ended up doing was pushing the unemployment rate down uh, to 4.2% from 4.6%. This happened, Amy, even as roughly 500,000 people entered the labor force to look for jobs. So we had tons of people find jobs, 1.1 million people, but we also had more people starting to look for jobs. And that's another good sign that that could help with the labor shortage we're seeing. That could help with inflation that we're seeing. And, and Andy, that that was the number that I clamped on to. I mean, at first, that was a huge disappointment of, you know, 500,000 jobs expected, only 200,000 actually occurred. Um, and, I, and the market reacted immediately to, to that bad news. But, I, I mean, when you have over half a million people joining the workforce, that's that's we need that. I, I mean, there are a lot of businesses that are scrambling uh, for employees. So I, I was personally happy to see that. And, and it kind of surprised me how, okay, why now? And I, it looks to me like, okay, we thought this would, we'd see people reenter the workforce after Labor Day, after the additional unemployment benefits ran out. And, and instead it's happening now. Did, did that surprise you that there was a two or three month lag time? Not that much of a surprise. I saw a recent study out there, Steve, that showed people have been able to save up probably about two months worth of money to get through. Uh, 
you know, just to get through their daily life. Um, if you, we can look back to pre-pandemic times, it's about 69% of people that are living paycheck to paycheck. That's a scary, that's just a scary number. It's way too high. Uh, and people got some money from the government, uh, from all the assistance and everything that's COVID related. Completely understand that. I'm not making this political at all. But that savings has certainly allowed those people, many people, to not have to go back to work because they have that cushion. So now that that cushion is running out, you know, this could be steps in the right direction for the labor shortage to uh, start to reduce a little bit and improve. Okay, Andy, I want to know, is there anything that's keeping you up at night right now? And I know you've got two teenagers. I'm not talking about your kids. I'm talking about anything that has to do with the economy right now. Anything that worries you? Well, you know, I think inflation is a risk, right? If it does stick around longer, what the Federal Reserve, our nation's central bank, and what they've done in the past is all too often hike interest rates too quickly and push us into a recession. So right now we do have inflation running hot and something needs to be done about that. I still think it might, I still think it probably starts to uh, recede in the second half of next year as you know, labor shortages should improve. And also I think the, the supply chain will get better as well, but it doesn't happen overnight. And I think you start to see some improvement, possibly even without any sort of Fed involvement. But the Fed is going to feel pressure to raise interest rates. Now, remember, the Fed cares about full employment and it cares about uh, stable inflation. We're pretty close to full employment. So that argues for not keeping rates near zero. We're seeing inflation running hot. That means that there's an argument for the Fed to possibly raise rates. Right now, the market's pricing in about two and a half hikes next year, uh, with the first one happening in June. The response to that, I think, will be really critical. So I'm going to continue to watch that really closely. I want to pivot a little bit, Andy. I saw a name in the news today I, I haven't seen for a while, Evergrande. They're, they're, they're back. And apparently they've got a whole bunch of bonds that are due to make interest payments today. And instead of paying interest, it looks like they're going through a major restructuring back where we were a few months ago. Um, are you worried about Evergrande? I, I mean, can that, can that leak into other aspects of the economy or markets? Well, it certainly will affect the Chinese economy. And because Evergrande is really just the most well-known issue of their real estate problems. They're really just the focal point, front and center. That's what everybody is watching. But there's a lot of other property developers that are going through some other problems in China. And China's economy is slowing down. It's not negative growth at all. It's just slower, positive growth. And the possibility of Evergrande defaulting on some debt, you know, they do have 82.5 million of interest payments coming out or due today. Uh, they may not make that. It's uh, uncertain as of right now. But with that being said, what the China's uh, central bank is trying to do, the PBOC, is they're trying to improve the liquidity and to help hopefully mitigate some of that fallout and to help the economy that does uh, that is slowing. So they're pumping some liquidity into their economy uh, to hopefully keep things afloat. So it's going to have an impact on China. China's real estate sector is a mess, just to put it you know, bluntly. I mean, we've seen, we've all seen those images of ghost cities out there, right? Where no one's living in uh, them and they could house, you know, tens of millions of people probably, mm -hmm. uh, but no one is there. When we look at the rest of the world though, it's probably unlikely that the real estate uh, the problems in China ripple out too much to the rest of the world. There might be some minor uh, effects, but it's nothing like uh, the fallout from Lehman. 
I think my biggest takeaway here, Andy, is that if you're sleeping okay at night, I'm sleeping okay at night. Here's a Simply Money point. One of the most important things you can do during heightened market turbulence, as we've been seeing recently, just remain level-headed. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, well, subscribe to our weekly podcast. It's the best of Simply Money on the iHeart app or wherever you find your podcast. Ahead in just three minutes, why some of you right here in the Tri-State are going to get a break on your property taxes next year. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. You know, there's just a few more weeks left in 2021. Hard to believe. Head at 643, some year-end tax reminders to make sure that you can maybe save a little. If you live in Hamilton County, well, we've got some good news. Something that you were promised, well, 25 years ago. You know, Steve, this whole stadium sales tax thing is incredibly... <laughs> Political. Don't, don't and... get me started. Yeah. <laughs> yes. This has been a mess. It's it's probably well, probably. I think I think you can make a real good argument. The worst stadium deal in the United States. I, I in mean, the history of stadium deals. Oh, okay. We're we're, go- <laughs> we're going back to nineteen ninety six and, and and you know, we approved as voters, we approved a half a percent increase in the sales tax. With the promise, and and I thought this was kind of a legal promise, not just a uh, trust me promise, but apparently, wink, it was wink. A, yeah, exactly, that we would we would get a rebate of what we paid in. We would get this money back. Well, this is only the third time since 2010 we're getting a rebate, and it's it's you know 30 percent of of what we paid in. You know, so it's it's not even a full, but that's as much as you can expect to get based on the deal. So for the third time since 2010. Uh, Hamilton County property owners are going to get a rebate on their property tax of $89 for every $100,000 of valuation. So, okay, we get a couple hundred bucks back, you know, whatever it works out to be in your particular case. But it's our money. So, So what are we really getting? Yeah, it's like every, I know people who um, love it when they get like major money back, right? Yeah. When they can do their taxes every year. I'm like, yeah. it's your money. It's your money that yeah. you're getting back. It's not the government giving you money that you, that was never yours. No, you before. gave the cashier an extra ten dollars by accident, so they gave it back to you. Is that yeah? Do you feel yes. good? No, exactly. <laughs> anyway, no. but anyway, good news uh, yeah. for those of you who get a little bit of money back. We've been talking about how much extra people are spending this holiday season. Maybe it's a little bit uh, extra to help you dig out of some debt if, if that's the direction you're heading. Listen, if you're racking your brain, speaking of the holiday shopping season, trying to figure out what to get a child in your life, it's your grandchild, your niece or nephew, just someone you really care about. We would say maybe you want to consider investing in their future. And Steve, it's interesting because there's a lot of parents who would say, yes, please do exactly that for our kids. Oh, I I remember when my kids went to college. I I mean, I was blown away at the cost. And it's not just sticker shock. Yeah, not just books and tuition, but there's a lot of other miscellaneous fees. And books and tuition are a lot of money to boot. And, and, you know, a, a recent survey, half of parents said they're they plan on asking Family and friends. That, that's a weird one. Asking a friend, "Hey, get, give my kids some money in their in their five twenty nine. <laughs> but they're saying instead, instead, inst- yeah, very close. Instead of a gift, hey, uh, we've got this five twenty nine. Why don't you make a check payable to the five twenty nine? And, and what shocks me even more, almost ninety percent of parents said, "Oh yeah, I think that would be a good idea. I don't know if I'm going to ask people to do it, but I I'd really appreciate that." I did my own survey, and the average six year old says zero percent interest in this idea. They want a toy you know but the the cost of college is getting stupid now and, and i get parents being nervous 
Well, you know, to your point, yes, the average six-year-old has no interest in it. But I will tell you, you know, we've got now four children, um, a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old, and all of them get it. We talk very openly about money in our house. Um, In in a couple of years ago, my daughter actually, uh, my dad asked her what she wanted for her birthday. And she specifically said, Papa, I'd like some money for my 529. Like, she realizes. Yeah, she she actually asked for that. Which is funny because I had been saying for years, like, hey, dad, 529. And of course, like he wants to, you know, get something fun for the kids. But when she asked for it herself, he was like, yeah, absolutely. We'll do that. Um, And so I think kids, as they get older, start to really realize like, gosh, this is expensive. And, you know, the the thought of looming student loans afterwards is really scary. So I think parents and kids are kind of starting to think along these lines and Five twenty nines, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago, right? Like, it just was not no. really a, a known entity, and and now they've kind of become super common for for so many families. Yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit because I, I've set them up for my uh, grandkids, and and uh, you know, five. Well, first of all, I still get questions from people of, "Hey, I'm looking for a way to put money away for college for my kid. What's the best?" Right? The answer is five twenty nine. Do Hands your own. Down. Yeah, do your own research, but I know of no other plan that is as flexible and tax advantaged as a 529 plan. And there are still some people that think, oh, yeah, but that's the plan where if they go to a different school in a different state, you can't use that. No, 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 no. You're thinking of a long dead plan called the Ohio Tuition Trust Authority. No, a 529 plan is where you can put money into an account, and there's a lot of investment choices, so you're not locked into you know a low rate of return or or low interest rates or something like that. And that money grows tax free if it's used for qualified educational expenses for that child. So yeah. go ahead, set set up a, and anybody can set them up. You can set it up for a grandkid, your own kid, somebody else's kid, wh- whatever. But you know the bottom line is it's a great way to save money for college, and it's even flexible enough. If that kid gets a scholarship or decides not to use that money uh, for college, or you decide that kid didn't turn out the way I wanted, and, and I want to uh, give that money to their brother or sister, it there are lots of options available to you. So yeah, five twenty nines are great investment tools. And they become more and more flexible all the time. Yeah. Um, Washington just revisited this a, a couple of couple years, of years ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. And what they said was, hey, this doesn't just have to cover uh, cost of college or trade school. It, this can cover, um, you know, kindergarten through 12 if they're yeah. going to a private or religious school. Now, one thing I would say is that gives them less time for that money to grow, right, and yeah. compound. If you're going to start putting away money for your kids, I mean, I know people who set them up when they're pregnant um, and go yep. ahead and start, you know, putting money in there as soon as those kiddos are born. So that, um, you know, that money has time to grow by the time that they're 18. But hey, however you want these to be used, there's lots and lots of flexibility. And I've even heard stories about people who, for whatever reason, none of their grandkids needed the money. Maybe they didn't go to college or they all got scholarships or whatever. Like you can actually end up using this money yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I've heard of people taking cooking classes and even um, golf classes and things like that. It's amazing, truly, how flexible they can be. So if you're trying to figure out this holiday season, like, oh, well, they wanted a PlayStation 5, but I can't find it anywhere. Well, this may not be as exciting now, but I'm telling you, down the road, this is the kind of gift that I think will really be appreciated. Here's the Simply Money point. Take it from a parent, man, who's got kids that are going to be heading off to college in the next few years. If you're trying to figure out what to get a kid that you care about, we'll consider investing in their future. We would say the best way to do that is 
is a 529 account. Coming up at 634, one of the biggest money taboos that no one is ever comfortable talking about. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovec. Joining us tonight is Anna Staples. Anna is an analyst at uh, Bankrate.com, um, great uh, great source for all things financial. And uh, Anna, thanks for joining the show. Um, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, credit card debt and and why that is such a subject that, m- that many people consider taboo. Indeed. Um, actually, people would rather talk about anything than credit card debt, really. Um, and we did a survey recently, and we found that actually 79% of people with credit card debt are comfortable talking about their uh, religious views. 77% are, ta- uh, are comfortable talking about their political views. But only 53% of people with credit wow. card debt are comfortable discussing it with their family and close friends. So not even with strangers, but, you know, with people they know well. And I think it really shows how, you know, how taboo this topic really is still to people and how, you know, there are so many sensitive topics there, you know, uh, people would rather talk about the, their credit card balances. That, that, that's shocking that people would rather talk about politics in this polarized society that, than, their, yeah. uh, than their credit card debt. I, I can vouch for it from, you know, my standpoint. I grew up uh, uh, in a family where there just wasn't any money. And I, I still remember, and this is going back to the uh, early 70s, that my mom and dad got their first credit card and they just were shocked that they could they didn't have to go to the bank uh fill out paperwork that they could literally use a loan that was always in existence and go out and buy a pair of sneakers or a pair of shoes or something like that it was a new concept back then and it's just obviously it's part of our society now and i think the older people are going to be a little bit less comfortable talking about debt than younger people is that kind of what the numbers uh tell us Absolutely. Uh, the generation most comfortable, you know, discussing their credit card balances is millennials with um, 62% of millennials, you know, comfortable enough discussing it. But, you know, to compare only 51% of Gen X and 47% of baby boomers are, uh, are comfortable talking about credit card balances. So, uh, you know, I think you're right. And it goes to show that, you know, for older people, for whatever reason, this topic is still more sensitive than many others. And it's interesting, too, because young people tend to be more cautious discussing such, you know, sensitive topics, whether it's religion or, you know, safety, uh, COVID-19 protocols, anything really. But um, when it comes to credit cards, they're kind of more open. You know, um, 59% of Gen Z, for instance, are also, if they have credit cards, that they are comfortable enough discussing it with the people close to them. So um, I think it's a good sign in a way that it shows that we're kind of battling this stigma around this topic and we're having more open conversations, but definitely it's still a sensitive topic for a lot of people. So when you say uh, Gen Z, give me an age uh, category. What what age would gener- Generation Z be? Sure. We're talking about our adult Gen Z here, so it's from 18 years old to 24 okay. years old, so, so- you know, young people, but they're in the workforce already. Gotcha. So college kids and fresh out of college, are, are you finding that, that that generation is is getting themselves into any serious credit card issues? What, what's, what's the average credit card balance in that segment? 
so we don't have the exact number for, for now for Gen Z. I know that the last year uh, an average credit card balance overall was over $5,000 okay. uh, just for, you know, any generation included. But I think it just goes to show how prevalent this issue is and how common it is. Um, and I think as far as Gen Z go, they are pretty cautious about credit card debt and, you know, their financial situation overall because they have seen how the millennials struggle. They have been into some uh, economic turmoil. So, you know, they assume things. <laughs> they're, they're careful, and they're careful with their credit cards too. But we have also found that, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of younger people, uh, millennials and Gen Z, actually increased their credit card balances, and a lot of them are saying that it is due them to the pandemic. So even though they're careful, um, you know, um, I would say that they are still using their credit cards, maybe not in the best situations. And it, just, it may be just due to either lack of financial education or just not having any other means to pay down for whatever they need to pay for. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, and we're talking tonight with Anna Staples, an analyst at Bankrate.com, about credit card debt, especially among the younger generation. And, Anna, you make a good point. I, I think everybody spent a little bit more on credit cards during the pandemic because if you're not going anywhere, you might just stay at home and, and see what's on sale at Amazon or, or whatever .com uh, website you happen to be on. So let, let's, let's take a look at this. If you got yourself into a little bit of excessive credit card debt that you can't necessarily pay off, this month and, and next month is looking kind of shaky also. Uh, give me some strategies for paying down credit card debt. I think the very first thing to do really is to look at why you got into credit card debt in the first place. Because as you said, some people might have been shopping, you know, with a coping skill because things have been hard. And, you know, sure. that's such a uh, great boost of happiness. Well, and and there are different ways of paying it down. One of one of the ones that drives me a little bit crazy is okay. Let, let's uh, go ahead and transfer balances to this card. They're going to charge me zero percent for the next year. Is, is that a good idea in your opinion, or a bad idea? Uh, I think it's a good idea if you are ready for it because you know this strategy is amazing because you do save so much money on interest. But the main thing here is to not spend anything at all on your credit cards while you're doing that. So if you know that you can do it for, you know, 18 months or however long your APR, zero APR period is, then that's great. You know, for, you know, if you know that you're disciplined, that is amazing. But if you're kind of, you know, worried that you might not be prepared for such commitments, just look into your budget, see where you can cut, see where you can limit yourself and, you know, to spend more on your credit card debt. Um, there are different uh, methods to pay down your debt. You may start with um, cards with your uh, with the lowest balances so you feel that motivation that you, you know, you keep going, you keep paying them off with great. Or if you still want to save on interest, you can start with the cards with the highest interest. And you might not save as much, of course, as with a 0% uh, balance transfer card. But it's still, you know, it's still great savings that it will keep you motivated. Well, and I think that is such a key as, as an investment advisor and a certified uh, financial planner. It's having having a game plan to get that balance paid off in a reasonable amount of time. Um, and you, if you're just going and racking up more credit card debt while you're paying down one of your other credit cards, you're not really gaining any ground. I, I think that's that's the best advice we can take out of this. you agree? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think a balance transfer card is amazing. I think, you know, uh, people should really take advantage of these offers, but they should really be prepared to be disciplined to avoid getting themselves even into more debt. Great advice from Anna Staples, analyst at bankrate.com. You've been listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sproback. Coming up, how does a four-day work week sound to you? Could one be coming to your workplace? What some employers have learned about shortening your work week. So the last month of the year means a lot of things, right? It's a busy time. The holidays, there's parties. Of course, there's bowl games. You see going to the championship, lots to do. But there's also an opportunity this time of year, and this may sound a lot less exciting, but super important, year-end tax planning. You know, see, you and I were just talking the other day about this time of the year is the oh, busiest one at all. Not even close. Yeah, yes. this is by far our busiest time of the year. There's a lot of uh, a lot of year end tax planning that goes on, right. and you know, there's some basic things, but a lot of people forget about the the basics. And you know, next thing you know, it's December twentieth, and and hey, oh, we still have to do this, and it might be too late. I mean, sure. just like you've got to put stuff in the mail by December fifteenth to make sure it happens. Um, custodians, Fidelity, you know, TD Ameritrade. Companies like that, they have deadlines because, okay, it takes people to process these requests. And if you want them done by uh, year end, uh, you got to get them done. So uh, let's talk about it a little bit. I I mean, one of the things that I I think everybody should take a hard look at, and you might not have this option, but, you know, before the end of the year, you may want to take a loss. And this sounds weird, but, you know, why would I lose if the stock's going to go back up? If you've got something down and you sell it at a loss, well, that may be something you can use to offset any gains you have this year. So, you know, take a look at your cost basis. Take a look at what you paid for your various investments. And if you've got a loss, you might want to think about taking that loss. And if it's something you want to hold for the long haul, you wait 31 days before you buy it back and the IRS says, that's okay, we'll still let you take the loss and and you had enough at risk for 31 days to buy it back and and you can still uh, own that security for down the road for when you think it does recover. Yeah. Another thing to do is um, figure out what tax bracket you're in, right? Make sure you know and yeah. how close you are to the top of that tax bracket. We had a close family friend several years ago who did not have the best financial advisor. And so they just kind of requested, hey, we're going to go on this trip this year. We're going to do some renovations to the house. And so the check was sent. Uh, and that advisor never had the conversation with them of, hey, have you thought about the fact that this additional funding, right, once you take it out, is going to push you into a higher Ooh, tax bracket? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So so, so just know these things and kind of tuck it away in the back of your mind. And Steve, most of us aren't going to be able to itemize, right? The right. standard deduction was changed a few years ago. About 90% of taxpayers now um, just file without itemizing. But there's a way that you can try to bunch some of the things that you can put on your taxes, uh, maybe shove to next year or the year after. And when you can bunch, sometimes it makes sense then for you to be able to itemize. Yeah, it, it, it may. I, I mean, you know, the uh, what's the standard deduction? About twenty five grand now, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, not a lot of people gift more than that to charity. Or, or have the deductions. But yeah, that's that's a case where you may want to start looking at what gains and what losses you have 
and maybe intentionally push some off in, into next year. Um, and you may even want to take a gain this year, which sounds weird. But, you know, if capital gains rates go up next year, you may want to take it this year, although I'm, I think that may be one of those legislative deals that, that's dead in the water. I'll tell you what I've been uh, getting a lot of questions about, Amy, is required minimum distributions mm, be, yep. because um, they they were two, – two changes happened. First of all, last year, 2020 – you did not have to take one. Well, guess what? This year you do. Yeah, you know, that was a one-year deal only. So if you haven't taken your RMD and you're required to, yeah, you've got to take that uh, in all likelihood before the end of, uh, before the, end of the year. Um, it also will be a larger dollar amount because you're one year older and hopefully you've made some money and those are the two variables in determining the amount. So double-check with your advisor or your IRA custodian have you taken it out? Are you positive? Okay. And have I taken out enough? Those are those are two important questions. Two important questions because if you get it wrong, and, and I think there's a, a general fear and anxiety, right, Steve, when people get yeah. close to that age, to that threshold where you have to start taking RMDs because there's just so much talk about it. But the penalty reserved for people who don't do this. The correctly. highest in the tax code. Yes. What's the deal? Congrats. You've reached your 70s. And now if you don't get this right, you get a 10% penalty. Oh, uh, no, 50%. 50%. That's right, yeah. 50%. And, and you yeah. still have to take the money out yes. and get taxed on it. Yes. Yeah. So that's why so, people are nervous about, I, you know, I don't want to forget this one. The IRS tends to be a little bit lenient about that as long as you make up for it as soon as possible. But still, it's better. Make sure you take it out by the end of the year. Something else you want to make sure that's on your radar, if you have one of these, is a flexible spending account. I was, this was me, I don't know, it was maybe even eight, ten years ago now. Um, I had an FSA and just built up too much money. I mean, it's, it's hard to know um, from year to year as, as much as you can try to plan on how much you're going to need for these medical expenses and contacts and things like that. You just never know. Well, we had extra money left over in our FSA, and I had this, oh, my goodness, moment at yeah. about... Eight o'clock one evening of like, it has to be spent tonight. Use it, it or was, lose it. It yeah. was me in the CVS in Northern Kentucky with baskets, right? Because they don't even have carts at CVS, <laughs> like baskets full of Band-Aids and contact solution. And I'm on my phone with a list of, okay, can I get a thermometer, right? So just make sure that you spend this money because with an FSA, it is a use it or lose it yeah. situation without a doubt. And don't confuse it with a health savings account, which nope. I know you're a big proponent of because yeah. HSA sounds similar, but no, that's not use it or lose it. Yeah, the, one of the big advantages of a health savings account or HSA is you don't have to spend it by year end. But if you've got a flexible savings account, yep, make sure you make sure you use it all by the end of the year. Know the difference. Here's a Simply Money point. We know this time of the year is really busy, right? You're focusing on the holidays, shopping, decorating, and trimming your tree, but spending a little time trimming your tax bill this month, well, that can really pay off. Coming up, how does a long weekend sound? How about one every week? Why more employers are looking at four-day work weeks? You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. You know, this was a little bit of a, an experiment, Steve, a workplace experiment that ended up paying off big time because it ended in a four-day work week for one company. So think back to when this pandemic started, yeah. right? And, and everyone was just burnt out. You were working from home. You were living at home. Your kids were at home. You were never leaving. And, and there was a company. It's an online children's clothes retailer. They're called Primary. And they said, listen, like, you guys just need a little more time away from the workstation. 
stuff. So we're going to start giving you a four-day work week, and we're going to see <laughs> how this goes. Uh, and it went really well. Oh, newsflash. Workers liked it. Come yeah. on now. Shocking. I mean, I mean, my attitude is, oh, a four-day work week is good. Well, and to me, a three-day work week would be even better. I, I, I mean, this is something we've been talking about since the Nixon administration. I, I yeah. mean, you know, going to a four-day work week, yeah, there's a lot of positives about it. But, you know, if you're running a company, your your whole point is be profitable, make money, grow. And people working five days a week for you versus four days you would think would be, you know, the way to go. But they're, they're finding that, you know, giving workers a four-day work week, they're more appreciative. They're working harder during those four days, and productivity isn't necessarily off. So, you know, we've seen Iceland um, give this yeah. a shot. You know, there's a couple of couple of places around the world where it's kind of an experiment, and it has not not worked out yet. So we'll see. Stay tuned. Let's see if it uh, pans out. Well, I think to your point, Steve, the number one concern here is production, right? Yep. And what they found is that workers are more productive. They're more um, kind of engaged in the day-to-day -day where they've realized that they have to cut back and be more efficient is in meetings, which I think we could all say oh, amen. Yeah. Amen to that, right, with all the meetings that we're on. So how do you um, just be more effective and make sure that those meetings are necessary? Um, but one thing, interestingly, on the on the kind of negative side of this, they also found that workers were less engaged, right? A lot of the extra things that you do, team building and things like that, those are the things that fell by the wayside. And I think also the question is, say you... Um, have an attorney, right? And all of a sudden you call your attorney on Friday, you're used to right. their attorney getting back to you or your accountant or whatever that, or your doctor, your professional services, you can't get a hold of them for three days. There's certain lines of business that it, it just might not work. Yeah, I, 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 that's the thing. I don't say, maybe in the manufacturing sector it'll work if you get productivity the same, but in the service area or professional uh, area, I, I mean, the stock market is open five days a week. So that's not an option to me. Uh, you, you know, so, you know, my question is, is this really going to extend across the uh, across the country? I I don't see it. And and all of these things that I'm reading about how much workers like it and how it's working at these are real short short term uh, samples that that we're looking sure. at. You know, who wouldn't want to work four days instead of five days? But you know, I I got to think you extend this out six months or so, and the workers yeah they're starting to blow out by noontime on Thursday instead of noontime on Friday. So you well, know, they're calling Thursday. Friday. Uh, Are right? they now? Yeah. So like it, yeah. you've got a whole new lingo for this. Um, but what they found um, is that there's um, significantly higher levels of well-being, right? Workers who had this, they were less likely to feel chronically burned out. But then again, kind of the higher levels of active disengagement. So pros and cons to all of this. I have a friend who is so organized and, and there's certain days a week when she just says no to meetings and she just focuses on getting work done. Yeah. I think there's certain people like that that would absolutely thrive in this, but procrastinators, people that take a while to get around yeah. to something that need a little extra time may not work for them. So pros and cons to this, but more and more companies are trying it. Um, Kickstarter is one of them, Shake Shack, Unilever in New Zealand. I know there's a number of businesses in New Zealand. So I think this is becoming more and more common. And I wouldn't be surprised if we aren't talking about this more often as more companies start this. You, you know, if we just eliminated Zoom meetings and, and took that, that amount of time and put it on the wayside, that's a good productive four-day work week right yes. there. Yeah, I, I'm all for that.
<laughs> it's funny how we went to Zoom meetings, and at first it was like, yeah. this is great. Now we are all Zoomed out. So maybe a four-week is coming to your workplace soon. Keep an eye out. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC. We are the talk station.